the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, I want to invite you to stand as you're able as we read God's Word. Gospel of Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. Luke 12, beginning with verse 13. This is God's Word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. After church today, there's, there's something that I'm going to do, but I'm going to need $40 cash to do it. I don't currently have the $40 cash, but, oh, hey, Elijah and Tiana. What, what's that? Oh, for, what is $40 cash? How about, thank you. I appreciate that. You can go on and have a seat looking all good. Look at that, church. Now, why is it that when I said I needed $40 cash to do something after church, that my kids came up here and gave me this $40? Because I gave it to them before service. And not only did I give it to them before service, I told them that I was going to be calling for it. And not only did I give it to them and tell them that I was going to be calling for it, but I told them something else. You see, right now, they're not even sad. They're not sad right now that they had to give to their father because I told them, I made them a promise that I was going to give them more than they gave me sometime later. They don't have any issues giving to their father because two hours ago, they didn't have it. I gave it to them told them I was calling for it and that I would give them more than they gave me later on. When Jesus came preaching about the kingdom, he came preaching about a rule and a reign of God in the world. And that rule and reign was not only going to be an external rule, but Jesus said that it was going to be an internal rule. It was going to be a kingdom that advanced in the heart. And through the course of his teaching, one of the things that Jesus did is he talked about the barriers that we have to living in God's kingdom, to entering God's kingdom. There are heart barriers that we experience as people that make it difficult for us to enter the kingdom 
and it make, make it difficult for us to live as kingdom people. And one of the barriers that Jesus brought up most was money and material possessions. That was one of the most frequent things that Jesus spoke of. Out of his approximately 38 to 40 parables, Jesus had 16 parables that were directly aimed at addressing money and possessions. That's a lot. And here's the irony. It's one of the topics that Jesus cares most to expose. And it's one of the issues that we care most to conceal. In my 14 years of, of experience in local church ministry, I have had more people than I can count come and tell me intimate details of their sexual brokenness and come in and seek pastoral counsel from me and how to get away from those, those sexual sins and, and pieces of brokenness in their lives. But I have never once had someone in 14 years, never once of all the thousands of people that I've encountered and dealt with and cared for, I've never once had a single person bring their budget to me and ask me for pastoral counsel and care about how to avoid the greed and materialism in their hearts. Never once have I had that. And all it does is point out a simple thing. We try to hide on this subject, but one of the ways that Jesus presses in on his people, presses in on the crowds that come to hear him, is he engages them on this very subject. Because he knows that how we deal with money and possessions is an index of our own hearts. If you want to know how your heart is, you need to consider what you do with your possessions, according to Jesus. This is an important one. It's not everything, but it's an important thing when it comes to rightly understanding where you are. It does not pay for us to deal in abstractions. And we also must recognize that that. One of the places where error hides the most is in the places where we refuse to uncover it. In the places where we hide, there is error behind it. If you scratch concealment and hiding, behind that is error and brokenness. So this morning, Jesus is inviting us to lay our hearts bare before his teaching and to consider what he has to say. Now, I want to say this right up front. If you find yourself trying to squirm away or trying to rationalize why this is not directed to you, you need this most. You need this most. And, and, and I want, and I'm saying this in, 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 the, in the way of grace. This is not an I gotcha sermon. That's not what this is. It's not this at all. This is an important aspect of, of the kingdom and the way that the kingdom is to advance in our hearts. We have been doing a series on the kingdom of God. And if we're going to talk about being kingdom people, if we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to participate in the, in the life and the work of the kingdom, then we must deal with the subject of possessions. So this morning, we're going to look at, at something important. we got to do business with possessions if we're going to talk about life in the kingdom and what it means to be kingdom people. So we're going to approach this text through two points, where we see the pull of possessions and the perspective of Christ. The two points that we're gonna drive, the pull of possessions and the perspective of Christ. So let's, let's look at our first point, the, the pull of possessions. Now, at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, he has a lot of people coming to hear him teach. 
He has a diverse crowd of people. He has people that are all the way sold on what, um, on what he's teaching. They're like, I'm in, I'm following you, Jesus. Everything that you say, I'm, I'm there, 100%. And then you had other people who were skeptics. You had religious leaders. You had, you had the lawyers, the experts in, in, in religious things. They were skeptical. They wanted to know what it is he was teaching exactly. But, but you also had a whole spectrum of people in between. So there's this spiritually diverse crowd, people all over the map coming to hear Jesus teach. And on this one occasion, while Jesus is teaching, this one man makes his way forward in the crowd and he asks Jesus a question that's reflected in verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now here's the deal. If you've been following what Jesus has been saying up to this point in his teaching in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus hasn't been talking about anything having to do with this, really. So this man is asking this, you know, random, out-of-the-blue question. And Jesus' response is sort of like, man, what, you all off topic? What, no, this is, no. But, but Jesus sees something beneath the surface in the man's question. Because this man, obviously, to the eyes of Jesus, has an issue with greed and covetousness. And so Jesus drops down beneath the surface. Do you see, do you see what's underneath the surface of the man's question? He has relational problems because he has problems with greed and materialism. It's about to cause a mess in his family because he has greed and materialism in his heart. And so Jesus never wanted to waste a teachable moment. He jumps on that teachable moment and he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The man wants Jesus to referee a, a, a dispute concerning inheritance. But Jesus says, I'm not going to deal with that right now. I want to talk about the heart issues that you got to work through right now. Beware. Be on guard against all covetousness because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Covetousness. That's one of those words that we got to take it and go to blow the dust off of it, right? Covetousness. What is covetousness? It's an overinflated desire for something that you do not have. An overinflated desire for something that you don't have. What does it sound like? What does covetousness sound like in your heart? Man, if only I had covetousness. Oh, man. I like what they got one. Honey, did you see that the, the Smiths got covetousness? It's when your desire for good things becomes a, an ultimate desire. It's, be, it's when a good desire becomes a God desire, a governing and controlling desire for something that you don't have. And I'm going to tell you this. Our culture is built. It's designed to create covetous people. To live in this culture is to be fighting against the current of covetousness. This is the headwind in American culture. And we're going to get to more of that. But Jesus' warning is this. Be careful what you desire. Because it can skew your view of what life is really about. The fact that Jesus says that that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions immediately tells us that we are prone to believe that this is not the case. 
that life does consist in the abundance of possessions. We are often determined to prove Jesus wrong on this point. Nuh-uh, Jesus, you watch and see what happens when I get this house. Then I'm going to be happy. Nah, don't tell me that, Jesus. You wait. This vacation is going to be off the chain, and I'm going to be so happy. Jesus, don't tell me that, because when I get this, this new wardrobe, it's going to be on and popping, Jesus. I'm going to be so happy. We are determined to prove Jesus wrong on this, but Jesus is stating something that you may think is very obvious. But we must not discard it from our minds as obvious until it becomes an obvious reality in our lives. Until it shows up as an obvious truth in the way you live, don't discount it as something obvious that you don't have to give any attention to. We need it most. We need it most when we are, when we are prone to discard it and say, oh, I've already got that. Jesus uses intentional language. Be on guard. And this is the language that everyone would have been familiar with because the Roman guards were keeping watch on things. And that's the language that Jesus uses. Be on guard for attack. Be on guard for attack. It's important for us to be reminded as we hear Jesus say this, that what is normal in American life is often very different from what is normal in kingdom life. The norms of American life and the norms of kingdom life very rarely overlap. So that puts us in a a difficult tension when we are more aligned with American life than we are with kingdom life. But Jesus wants us to beware and to pay attention to our hearts, to guard. That means to diligently watch over. To diligently watch over. Because none of us is immune. And this enemy can can leap at us and take us down at any moment. But Jesus, after he makes this statement, he says, you know, we have have said regularly that Jesus loved to teach people through storytelling. Jesus didn't give a systematic theology of possessions right now. He told a story. Why? Because stories nag us. Stories confound us. Stories stretch us. And he tells the story of of this man who has a successful year in an agrarian culture where grain, that was like currency. In an agrarian culture, the story of this man would have been one that people would have perceived to be blessing. This man was blessed by God. But in the way that Jesus tells the story, it's showing us something very challenging. And so let's, let's pick up the story in verses 16 through 20. Jesus uses a parable to illustrate the teaching that life does not consist in the abundance of things. He tells a story to warn them against covetousness. This is what the text says. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, I want to say something right up front. Jesus is not demonizing wealth. He's not demonizing wealth. We all clear? Jesus is not demonizing wealth. 
What he's saying is wealth is a hot potato. It's a hot potato. It's hard to handle it. He's talking about the impact, listen, of selfish accumulation of possessions. The impact of selfishly accumulating things and the, and the impact that they can have on your identity and your relationship to the kingdom. This is what he's talking about. Self-directed accumulation. Let me dig that out. Look at the force of the text. Can you hear it? Can you, can you hear what's happening? Look at the emphasis of the story. First of all, this is one of the rare parables that Jesus tells where there's only one person in the parable. The man is by himself. But you know what else is happening in the, in the story? There's a repeated emphasis on his selfishness. Look at how many times my is repeated. It's four times in verses 19, I mean 17 through 19. And I occurs eight times in the Greek text, which points to his ingrained selfishness. My fruit, my barn, my goods, my soul. He even has a conversation with himself, praising himself. Self? I mean, anytime you get to talking to yourself about your plans, you got some. This is not a portrait of spiritual vitality, y'all. The man is talking to himself. He's relishing what he's going to do in his retirement years. He's thinking about how his 401k is bumping. He's thinking about that, that second house that he's going to get at the beach. He's thinking about all the things that he's going to be able to do for himself with his possessions. And that is the emphasis that is given to us in the parable. Now, let me ask you a question. How many people in this city, in this building, have very thin to non-existent community because of their pursuit of possessions? The point, there's a reason why Jesus has this man all by himself in the parable. And it's because oftentimes possessions and the pursuit of possessions will isolate you. You spend all of your time, all of your bandwidth trying to get these things because you think life consists in these things and then you are by yourself. It's like that old hip hop song that some of y'all may know by De La Soul. It's just me, myself, and I. I should have had you up here playing that on it. It's just me, myself, and I. That is often the story of our life relative to possessions. When we were created to have a mind full of the other when we think about possessions. When we think about all of life. But the man is isolated and so are many people in their pursuit of community. Our possessions, they lose community. Here's the thing that he just does not get, this man in a story. Small possessions with God is a big thing. And big possessions without God is no thing. Nothing. It's literally nothing. His perspective on the future, this man, is completely self-indulgent. Look at the text. It's all about him. And his resources are all about him and the good times he can have. It's self-centered. He's laid up treasure for himself alone. He has managed his wealth by worldly standards but he has morally mismanaged his wealth. 
giving no hint of thought for others or thanking God. No hint of others in this text and no hint of gratitude. You see that? Absent from the text. He's managed his money well by the world's standards, but he's morally mismanaged his wealth, according to God. And we tend to accumulate wealth with a view toward relieving ourselves of responsibility. Do you see that in the text? I'm going to accumulate as much as I can, and then I'll kick back. I won't have any responsibilities. But what Jesus is saying is, when you accumulate wealth, that's when the real responsibility begins. That's when you're really responsible. That's when you're really on the hook. To whom much is given? Yes, that's right. But this man is not thinking about his responsibilities. He's thinking about indulgence. We tend to think that our responsibilities in life end when we have secured our economic future. I'm gonna say that again. We think that our responsibilities in life have ended when we have secured our economic future. But that's when responsibilities really begin to pick up. The man gave himself a false comfort that allowed him to greedily focus on himself. But Jesus says life does not consist Life does not consist in these things. I love what Augustine, African church father, says in his sermon on this passage. This is what he says about the rich fool. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. That's fire. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were safer storehouses than met life. He didn't realize that the bellies of the poor were safer storehouses than TD Ameritrade. I'm talking to all of us in here. I like how Augustine puts that. Look at God's response to the man. Verse 20. God's response, fool. Fool. That's God's direct diagnosis of self-directed accumulation of wealth. Not smart, not money-wise, fool. And you know, this word fool throughout the Bible, you know what it means? It refers to those who consider their lives, their choices, their opportunities, and their responsibilities without reference to God. Without reference to, to love for God, without commitment to the glory of God. That's what a fool is. You consider Various aspects of your life without reference to God, without love for God, without commitment to the glory of God. That's the fool. The fool is blinded to God in the world and their responsibility to God in the world. And so they navigate their life without reference to him. And that's exactly what the man does with his money. And that's why the judgment upon him from God is you're a fool. You're a fool because if you had looked to me for guidance, if you had considered my glory, if you were living out of love for me, then you would not have selfishly accumulated these resources for yourself. Look at how possessions distort the man's view of life. To his mind, all problems are solved by the abundance of his possessions. You see that? He sits back satisfied. 
To this man, he's finding his happiness in the abundance of his possessions. And I will say to myself, self, eat, drink, be merry. Find your happiness in all you have accumulated and all of the freedom that it provides for you. To this man, he's entrusting his future security to the abundance of his possessions. Now, many people are planning for the future, but their future does not extend out far enough. You're planning for the next 40 years, 50 years. You're not, you're not planning for this, this eternity. You're not planning for this, the real life beyond this. See, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to plan for your future. It's not wrong to save. It's not wrong to invest. What Jesus is saying is that you must not accumulate merely for the purposes of selfish enjoyments. And there's a big difference there. There's a big difference there. Jesus, Jesus is blowing up the idea that possessions are the solution to our greatest needs. This man, it's, it's truer to say not that this man has possessions, but, this, but that this man is possessed. That's, this is our picture of what it looks like not to have possessions, but for possessions to have you. When possessions tell you what your future is going to be, when possessions set the dictates of how you're going to operate and what you're going to live for and how hard you're going to work and how many hours you're going to work, that is basically, I want you to envision your possessions sitting on the throne, barking at you, telling you, work more hours, do more, sweat more, give less, hoard it. That, that's, that's a picture of being a slave. This man's greatest need is going to become terrifyingly clear because on that very night he will stand before God and give an account to see what kind of return he has gotten on all the resources that God has made him a steward over. He's a fool because he has zero return toward God on all that he has possessed, on all that he has been given. Zero return toward God. And that's why the man's a fool. He doesn't deal with his possessions with reference to God, and he gets no return with reference to God. But he's going to be called to account for it. This is what I mean by, by thinking more long-term than your financial advisors will allow you. You must think beyond 40 to 50 years. You must think into eternity, and you must ask the question about how you are going to give an account for what has been given to you to steward. And the fact that, that God in the parable tells the man, who's going to deal with all your stuff because you can't bring it with you? It's become cliche, but it's poignant in this passage because the man's going to show up in the same way that he came into the world, naked. N-E-K-K-I-D, naked. That's how you say it. I don't care what Webster's has taught you. I'm here to revolutionize it today. He's going to show up before God naked. And the only thing that God's going to ask him is, what have you done with what I have given you? And this is repeatedly brought out by Jesus in the parables that we're going to have to account for God. 
account to God for what we have. Now, here's the deal. On that day, you will, on the day when you stand before God and have to give account for what you have done with your resources that have been given to you to steward, you will never regret standing before God and saying, what did I do with it? I chose others over self. You will never regret that. You will never regret viciously cutting things in your budget that allow you to increase generosity. You will never regret that. You will never regret when you chose to bless someone in need over yourself. You'll never regret it when you have been rich toward God and you have, you have checked your own heart and you have said no to yourself. If you're not practiced at saying no to yourself, that's a good place to start. No to self. Desire. I should have that. No. No. Instead, let me make it a practice that I'm going to choose someone else rather than me. Just try it every other time. Try it one in ten times. Start somewhere and then begin to grow it. There are three errors of the man in this text I want you to see. First is selfish hoarding of his possessions. That's the first thing that's an error. Selfish hoarding of his possessions. The second error is he assumes that life can be secured and measured by possessions. I can secure my life. And the measure of success is how much I have. And the third error of the man is he regards his property as his own. He thinks it's his. The emphasis on mine, 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 mine. And he has told himself this so often that it is his that he actually believes it. And, and, and he thinks that everything he has is the result of his hard work. Let me tell you, Christian, and friends visiting, trying to sort out through the Christian faith, what you have is not the result of your hard work. It's a grace. It's a gift. Because there are plenty of people who have worked just as hard as you have who don't have a fraction of what you got. It's just not the case. It does not accord with our understanding of life in this world. You have been placed where you have been placed by the goodness and providence of God. You grew up in the family that you grew up in through the goodness and providence of God. You have the mind that you have and you've had the experiences that you've had through the goodness and providence of God. Things that you have tried have worked because of the goodness and providence of God. He, he has not allowed you to fall off the map because of his goodness and providence. What you have is not the result of your hard work. If it's the result of a gift, if, if you've been able to get what you got through the gift of God and everything that you have acquired is a gift of God, then you must treat it as a gift, not as yours. It's not. It's not ours. These were his errors, but I want to get into some of the heart issues that play out in our greed and covetousness. Why are we greedy and covetous? What's in the heart? Now, let me pastor you for a second. We have different personalities in here, and so there are different reasons. This one issue of greed and materialism and covetousness, we take many different routes to get there, okay? So here are some of the reasons I think we do. One, we don't feel very valuable, so we need to impress others with what we have in order to gain their approval so that they will tell us that we're great. If you've ever felt really, really, really good when someone has told you that you're dressed really nice, or, or is, is that the new iPhone? 
Yeah. You know. That's an example. Why are we greedy and covetous? Because we're deeply afraid underneath, and so we accumulate for protection. We want to protect ourselves because we're terrified underneath. But soon, that protection, that protectiveness, it becomes a smokescreen for greed. Why else? We feel powerless and out of control, and we believe that money is the way to gain control and power. You feel like life is chaotic, things are out of your control, and I'm going to master my circumstances around me through acquiring money at any cost. Some of us have been discipled by worldly thinking, and we believe that this life of accumulation is simply being responsible. And we're rule followers, and so we stay in line with American orthodoxy on the accumulation of possessions for selfish ends. Listen, you can easily find yourself saying, this is just providing. I gotta provide. I gotta provide. But you can use providing as a cover for greed and materialism. And let me tell you what Augustine said to his congregation from his sermon on this passage. Get ready. This is what Augustine says on this point. Don't increase your money under the guise of family piety. I'm saving it for my children. A marvelous excuse. He's saving it for his children. Let's see, shall we? Your father saved it for you. You save it for your children, your children for their children, and so on through all generations, and not one of them is going to carry out the commandments of God. That's a hard word. I'm glad Augustine said it for me. And you know what this passage from Augustine got me thinking? What if it's more important for you to pass on generosity and faith as an inheritance to your children than it is to pass on loads of money and the greed that often comes with it? Pass on a generous spirit and a heart of faith to your children, and that will be worth more than any accumulation of goods that you can pass on to them. If I had the choice between passing on $5 to my kids and a great big old heart of generosity and faith, versus $10 million saved up with about 25 houses, I will choose the $5 and the faith and generosity on a good day. Ask yourself honestly, which of the two would you rather pass on to your children? Now start to practice in a way that says you believe what you just answered. That's what Augustine is encouraging us to say, wisdom from the ages. Another heart issue we follow the cultural liturgy of our age. Now, what do I mean by that? Sounds like fancy language. This is what I mean. All of us have an idea in our minds of the good life. What is the good life? Once you get that idea of what the good life is, then you aim your love at the things that will get you there. And you begin to practice the things that will get you there. If the good life in your mind is the life of leisure at the end, kick back, doing jack squat, having loads of money and not having any responsibility, then everything you're doing now will be practice for that end. But here's the question. Is Jesus in that? Is Jesus in that final picture? 
if he is, if he becomes the end picture, if the life that Jesus describes, the kingdom life, the, the, the life of discipleship and following Jesus is a part of your life, then generosity and mutuality and service and self-giving will be the good life to you. And then the practices that you practice will lead you there. And the loves, the way you aim your love will, will lead you there. Most of us would probably think, but this parable is about the rich fool, and I'm not rich. Let me say two things to you. First, the warning isn't just for the rich, and the rich don't have the market cornered on greed and covetousness. So don't let yourself be satisfied with light and fire to multi-millionaires and billionaires and you leave yourself unchecked. That won't do. But the second point I want to make, you need to think globally and historically about whether or not you actually are rich. We like to soften it up. I'm upper middle class. There's been research done. If you ask most people who are in fact rich, they call themselves upper middle class. Even Bloomberg and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal say it's time to start admitting that you're rich. Article headline. Just read it this morning. Here's the deal. If your household, listen to me, if your household income is $50,000, you are in the richest 3.9% of the world's population. You make 21 times the global average. And if you gave 10% of your income, you would still be in the richest 4.8% of the world's population and 19 times the global average income. That's if you make 50. 50 a year, household income. You're in the richest 3.9%. And you could give 10% of your income and still be in the, the upper five, fifth percentile. If you make six figures as a household, you're in the top 0.9% of the world's wealthiest people and you make 42 times the global average income. If you gave 10% of your income, you would still be the 1% of the wealthiest around the globe. And you would make 38 times the global average income. And I say all this for one reason. Don't try to rationalize it. We live in an expensive area, all that kind of stuff. I'm making this, making this point for one simple reason. You must hear the warnings to the rich as personal warnings. Not warnings to those people out there, the bankers, right? You can't, don't duck it, hear it, receive it, change. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm saying this. We know the pool of possessions, but we need to hear the perspective of Christ briefly, okay? Verse 21, this is how Jesus concludes after he tells his story in the parable. Jesus says, this man is called a fool for his selfish pursuit and accumulation, and Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the point. Church, how can you grow in being rich toward God? You must see in the gospel that God is rich toward you. This is the gospel. You don't change by going out of here and trying harder merely. You don't go out of here and say, oh, I just got to do better. And you, and you don't just will yourself to more generosity. You, you can't will yourself free from materialism. You must be broken free by grace and love. 
That's the only thing that can unlock the shackles. That's the only thing that can take you and make you free. God has been rich toward you. It is a, a God that has been rich toward you that says you must be rich toward him. Remember that God has given you more than he ever asked for in the gospel. Listen, if you see Christ living for you, if you see Christ teaching you, if you see Christ caring for you, if you see Christ suffering for you, if you see Christ dying for you, if you see Christ buried for you, Christ raised for you, Christ ascending for you, Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father pleading for you, if by the eyes of faith you see Christ coming back for you, then you become the most generous kind of person. You become the most free kind of person. Money cannot keep its grip on you. When you are captive to grace, you are slippery and greed cannot hold you. You become free and you become generous. Life changes. You came into this world naked. God has lavished gift after gift upon you and he calls for some of it back. But guess what? You don't have to be sad right now. You don't have to be sad about giving God that money. You can be a joyful giver, and here's why. Not only did the Lord give you everything that you have, not only did he tell you that he was going to call for some of it back, but he also made a promise that he's gonna give you back more than you gave him. You don't have to be sad. What is this to me for these kids that I love? What is this for me? What I care about is grooming in them generosity and trust. These kids know that they have never missed a meal and they're never going to miss a meal so long as I have any power to control it. Do you think that the Heavenly Father is better than me? These kids are going to receive more than they ever could count up. They, they can't count up all the diapers. They can't count up all the sleepless nights. They can't count up all the meals and the clothes and the insurance and the doctor's visits, the holistic care for their lives. They can't count it all up, and neither can you count up all of God's many mercies toward you and his affection and commitment toward you. So why don't you just be free in the love of God and know that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life is found in Christ, kingdom life. He has proven all of his word in Christ. He has proven it. Back in Eden, God came to Adam and Eve. He looked out over the garden. He said, all this I give to you. And in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus is going to look out over it all. and He's going to say to his people, all this I give to you. Not only has God already proven his abundance toward us, but there's more to come. That's astonishing. And that's good news. And that good news must set us free. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You are better to us than we can even really tell. You're better to us than we've been to ourselves. You're more generous to us than we could be to ourselves. You're more interested in our well-being than we are. And you are trustworthy. David said, I was young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And we pray, Father, that we would believe that hopeful word and testimony from David. And we would know that that is our situation in Christ. Lord, I pray that the, the, the shackles of greed and materialism 
would be heard hitting the floor as we walk out of here this, this morning. That we would hear those things falling off and we would go home and directly begin to do business with the kingdom call to see life through a different lens than possessions and the accumulation of things. And that we would put tangible practices and action to our heart commitments to do better and to live as your people. We pray that you would bless us in this. We pray that you would meet our needs as we seek to grow in generosity. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.